This morning we're in the second of a three-part series called Doctrine Matters. This morning we're going to be looking at second-order doctrines through the lens of baptism. We're going to be looking at various scriptures, but beginning in Matthew chapter 28 this morning. I've heard from some this week uh, that may be wondering why we are doing this series, and I realize with the events uh, last week being what they were, by the way, we're super glad that Isaiah is okay and uh, thankful that he is um, uh, back on his feet. Uh, But it may have led to some confusion, or perhaps I was not clear in my intent. That happens all the time. Um, but this is uh, this series is something that the elders has they, they have asked me to preach for this reason and, and, and i don 't want to in any way uh, bring any sort of alarm or anything like that this is This is helpful and healthy for our church, but uh, we believe that we need to head in a direction where though we hold to matters of first importance tightly as those things which are necessary for true gospel adherence as you I pray heard last week, and we are solid on our distinctives, those things that set us apart, particularly as Fellowship Bible Church, which we will talk about some this morning, especially baptism. It is true that in the past, our church has taken stances on third and fourth order doctrines as those which are of first or second order importance. When in reality, there can be a broad scope of understanding in the Christian world, and even within our church, areas around which we currently organize our church that are not first or even secondary type issues. And and we would like to bring some change to this. Just laying all of our cards on the table here. We would like to bring some change to that because we recognize that um, there are reasons for that. In fact, um, I told Paul uh, Sanders uh, that, that I might be short this morning. If I didn't go extemporaneous, I'm about to go extemporaneous, brother. In, in fact, if I can remember what I was just about to say, um, in, in fact, um, there are uh, those uh, third and fourth order doctrines that um, became important at the beginning of the 20th century because of things that were happening in liberalism. So if you recall last week, I'm giving a little bit of a history lesson here, by the way. If you recall last week, we talked about this distinction between fundamentalism and uh, uh, liberalism and um, uh, the historical church and and some who say, what do we need doctrine for at all? And and early on in that uh, 20th century issue, some of those third and fourth order doctrines became important because uh, they were uh, seen as signs of believing in inerrancy, that the scripture is true, that it says what it should say. Um, but even uh, in that time, there would have been distinctions that would have made one uh, Baptistic or Presbyterian or Methodist or things like that. Even those who would stand upon the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and I think for the time, those doctrines that were of third and fourth order importance were stood so strongly upon because they seemed to comport with inerrancy. And uh, while it is true that we, it is important to know why we believe what we believe about those things, we need to be careful not to become fundamentalists. Because what happened after the, the birth of the, the true fundamentals uh, that really were helpful in the midst of the liberal uprising is that those third and fourth order doctrines became so important to some people, as I mentioned in fundamentalism, that um, they, they began to become just personality cults. I am of this person or I am of that person, depending on how you believed about things like the way women should dress and the, the kind of activities p- families should participate in and, and, and these kinds of things. And so uh, it, it became that these matters of preference or even interpretations that are not as clear in the Bible about certain things became things over which the church would separate, not only denominationally, but even local churches. And so we want to be careful not to perpetuate that when there are good, faithful brothers and sisters, even in our midst, who believe differently about some of these third and fourth order doctrines. However, this morning, we want to focus in on second order or second ranking doctrines because they are things which we do organize our church around. There are things that we do organize our church around. So before we can get to those things, we need to talk about 
those things which are of utmost importance. And that's what I attempted to do last week. And if you need to go back and listen to that again, or perhaps need me to re-preach that, um, that then maybe we can get together and I can do that for you. But, uh, but then we need to talk this morning around those areas that are distinctive for our local assembly. Let me just, again, remind you of first, second, third order rankings as Gavin Ortland has given them to us in his uh, little book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, which is a great book that I would commend to you again. First-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. These are the absolute non-negotiables of what we would call orthodoxy. According to um, the, the, the Bible, certainly, and most certainly, and what we stand upon, but also as we think about doctrine being derived from the Bible and set into creeds and confessions, those things upon which the church has stood for 2,000 years, for instance, like Jesus is God. He is the Son of God eternally, but He is one in essence with God eternally as well. So Trinitarian theology and such. Second-ranked doctrines, if you have that uh, there with you, <coughs> excuse me, it's written on the back of your worship folder, and if you're tuning into the live stream, it should have been emailed to you. Second-ranked doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of, notice this, local church, denomination, and or ministry. And that last one there probably has the idea of parachurch ministry. And these would be the distinctives that we're going to at least focus in on. I will mention the distinctives to you this morning, but one of those we will focus in on this morning being baptism. And so not to get ahead of myself, you're just going to have to wait to hear what I mean by that. Okay. Um, third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. In other words, even as you organize your local assembly around second tier doctrines, These third-tier doctrines should not cause us to separate even within the local church. Things like eschatology, the way we believe about end times, um, and and, and we will get into that as well in the coming weeks. But uh, the point being that all Christians everywhere who are true Christians believe that Christ will physically return. That is orthodoxy. But the the how and when and, and, and why of that... Not the who, because we know the who, the how and when and why of that may differ amongst Christians, among solid Christians who stand firmly upon these other other, uh, doctrines that are so important. Then you have fourth-ranked doctrines. They are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaborations. And and, and what would fit in nicely here are things like personal preferences, uh, things like um, uh, what one considers to be um, modest dress or, or these kinds of things. Certainly we can have conversations and encouragement and accountability around that, but these are not things that we should uh, separate over. So again, reading the first and second order, first rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. We chatted about that last week. I taught on it last week. Second rank doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of local church, denomination, and or ministry. But even as they cause people to separate over those issues in uh, local churches or denominations or ministries, they are also what bring those local churches, denominations, and ministries together in the sense of distinctives. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the distinctives that the elders identified at our elders' retreat two years ago which feels like 10 years ago, uh, which we wanted to share with you in 2020. Uh, Unfortunately, 2020 then happened, if you know what I mean. And so we were kind of thrown into an upheaval and having to figure out how to do things. And so we we wanted to do it back then, and we are just getting to it now. So that's part of the reason why we're going through this is because we feel like we're in a stable enough place in gathering together that we can do this well together. So here are the distinctives that we came up with, we are a biblical church. It's in our name, Fellowship Bible Church. We believe that the Bible is our final authority concerning the faith and practice of our local assembly, both corporately and individually. Now, note this is not a confession of faith. These are distinctions that set us apart from 
other local assemblies, but clearly bring us together with other local assemblies, that one is a non-negotiable. So even as we talk about these distinctives, we begin with a first-order doctrine. The Bible is our final authority for faith and practice, both corporately as a local assembly and individually. So we're biblical. Secondly, we are confessional. Confessional. What do we mean by this? It's not a word that you've maybe heard a whole lot uh, in our history. Well, it means this. We hold that doctrine or theology is derived from the Bible and that faithful Christians have distilled these truths from Scripture into statements of faith by which local assemblies confess what they believe. In other words, we have a standard of doctrine that we hold to as a local assembly that if you become a member of our church, you covenant to hold to and teach according to. That is what we confess as um, this local assembly. Thirdly, we are reformed. We are reformed. That is a distinction. We hold that the Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th century recaptured the biblical truth lost in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't discovered. It wasn't something that was not there before, but it was something that was, uh, was sh- uh, shadowed, if you will, uh, during a time. It was darkened, if you will. It was still existed, but that Martin Luther and those who followed him um, were able to recapture that biblical truth. So we unapologetically stand on the five solos of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and uh, Sola Dea Gloria. That these codify the essence of recapturing biblical truth. And accordingly, uh, this would be in our confession, though it's not in our distinctives, but it, it flows from that. We are a Calvinistic church. That's a distinctive. We are also Baptistic. We are Baptistic. We believe, this is the one we're going to focus in on this morning, we believe the Bible puts forth that the proper means of baptism is by immersion and for those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ only. We're going to focus, I'm I'm tempted to like jump into all of that right now, but um, that is what we hold to. We are Baptistic, right? And then finally, we are cessationist. What in the world does that mean? cessationist. Is that some sort of a cult thing? Do you guys go out back and start a altar and burn? No, that's uh, insensationist. <laughs> now we hold that the miraculous sign gifts of the early church are no longer functional today. We do not limit what God can do according to all his holy will, but hold that he works in various means throughout history and that the apostolic gifts for the foundation of the church have now passed. Now, <clears throat> caveat here doesn't mean we don't believe that God can't heal people doesn't mean we don't believe that God doesn't work miraculously today but it does mean that those early sign gifts the sign of speaking in tongues and healing instantaneously by someone who has been given that spiritual ministry does not exist today that those things that I just mentioned are what make us distinctive or, or distinguish our church from other churches. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we hold out that brothers and sisters who do not uh, see the same as us in regard to that are not Christians. Okay? Except for the first one be, being that we're biblical, that that's the final authority for faith and practice within the church. So you see, even within these distinctives, there becomes some... Uh, first and second, but, but, uh, but in regard to the second order of doctrines, we're going to talk about baptism this morning. We would not say our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who hold to orthodoxy are not our brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they hold to a different view of baptism. So that's what we're going to draw out this morning as we talk about this. So these are matters of first, the biblical and secondary, the rest, importance. One cannot deny the importance of being biblical, but as we move on to the second uh, uh, and third and, and so forth, who recognize that confessions are statements of faith and their importance differ from church to church. We think it's important, though, and want to organize our church around these. Moving through the list, you can see the secondary nature of these. 
They are not issues over which we divide concerning the church universal, but that churches must organize themselves around these so that there may be order. And I know I just repeated myself, but God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. And so therefore, you have examples of this where Paul tells Timothy, as he's planting churches, to um, appoint elders. Same thing to Titus, to appoint elders. And, and, and then teach the men to do this, and teach the women to do this. And, and, and we see um, matters of confession in the Scripture. We looked at one last week from 1 Corinthians 15. This is of first importance, and here's what it is. It's laid out for us in words that are a codification of doctrine. But today, we'll focus on baptism as the lens through which we will highlight these distinctions and address why this is important for the organization of our church. Now, that was a really long introduction. So you've been on your bottoms long enough. You can now stand if you're able to. I'm going to read from Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. I'm going to stand and read the scripture reading, the New Testament scripture reading this morning. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. I'll read as you follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, the apostle, writes the words of Jesus. We'll start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And amen and amen to that promise that the Lord Jesus is with us. You may be seated. May he add his blessing to the New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me now in prayer? Lord, it is our prayer that this morning as we study your word together and talk about these matters as a church that that we would be Uh, comforted, Lord, that we would be convicted, that we would be changed by your Holy Spirit, who can, through his power, uh, open our eyes and our hearts to these truths, just as he inspired these words in the original autographs. And Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning and do not know you, that even as we talk about these matters of distinctives, that what would come through clearly is your gospel, your good news for sinners such as those who have not repented and believed the gospel, and as a good reminder to those of us who have, but especially, Lord, to those who do not know you, that your spirit would draw them to yourself this morning through the preaching of the word, and that they would be granted the gift of repentance and faith, and that they might uh, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, we praise you for truth. We want to stand firmly upon it. I pray that you would get me out of the way so that all we can see is your shining glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think of secondary issues, I think of a story that I've told you before, certainly, but that seems appropriate for this morning. George Whitfield and John Wesley were contemporaries and both preachers of the gospel. Whitfield and Wesley did not see eye to eye on all matters of doctrine and especially the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as Calvinism. People knowing of these, Whitfield was a Calvinist, Wesley was a, what we now know as a Wesleyan Arminian. People knowing of these differences would sometimes ask questions in regard to those differences. It's been reported that Whitfield was once asked, Do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? No, was Whitfield's reply. But he continued, John Wesley will be so close to the throne of glory, and I will be so far away, I will hardly get a glimpse of him. His answer wasn't, no, John Wesley won't be in heaven. His answer is, I won't see him because he is such a a man of God, though we disagree upon these matters, that he will be so close to the throne, and I so far away, that I will not even catch a glimpse of him. The differences over a secondary doctrine, a doctrine that does not determine if one is reconciled to God or not, yet important enough for these men to be a part of two different eventual denominations, as it were, does not ultimately divide at the level of the universal church. But it is something upon which we organize our churches differently. 
And we need to recognize that. Here's the main point. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder there. There are some doctrines that do not impact the truthfulness of the gospel, but do impact the way we organize and practice church. There are some doctrines that do not impact the truthfulness of the gospel, but do impact the way we organize and practice church. I want us to see this morning three elements concerning the discussion on baptism that helps us see the secondary nature of some doctrines. Two of these we heard back in January when I did a sermon on baptism. So if you were here for that sermon, you can take a nap. No, you need to pay attention. Three elements concerning the discussion on baptism that helps us see the secondary nature of some doctrines. We're going to look at two things upon which we agree with baptism, especially with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And then finally, the area of disagreement. So first agreement, baptism is a matter of obedience. Baptism is a matter of obedience. We are looking right now at Matthew chapter 28. And verses 18 through 20. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he commissions his apostles to make disciples. That is the main command here in the original language. It's not go, it's not baptize, it's not teach. It is make disciples. As you are going, it could be rendered. In other words, as you're living your life, not just the apostles themselves, but this now then trickles down to the rest of the church As you are living your life, make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the thrust of the statement to make disciples, but how how are the three modifiers to the command applicable? To go, to baptize, and to teach. This becomes the mode of the Great Commission as is seen in the rest of the New Testament. Going is the practice that we see in the ministry of Paul. He goes to different regions and doesn't just evangelize, but remains in places many times for years, starting churches and teaching them about the Lord. Again, I I draw our attention back to Romans. We looked at this for a bit last week, and just the idea that all that Paul was giving in in, um, the letter to the Roman church was what he would normally teach when he would go, it seems, when he would go to other cities. What does he say in the beginning of the book of Romans? I haven't been able to make it to you yet, so here we go. And he explains all these doctrinal matters. In 1 Corinthians, we see that though he had not baptized many, he had baptized some. So clearly this was a part of the practice that he had in the early days of planting the churches. He, in fact, says, I'm, I'm glad I did not baptize many of you because I didn't want you to attach your salvation to the baptism of Paul. In other words, like, oh, you were baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Paul. No, he, he said, I did baptize a few of you, but I, I want you to see the importance of the gospel. Yes, there is an obedient step in baptism. But you must believe the gospel, as he gets to in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, This is no different than the beginning of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. But there is no question as to what the apostles were doing as they went along, as they went on their way. They were making disciples and then passing that on to others as the commission which Jesus gave. And it was not just make converts, it was make disciples with the correlating practice of baptism. This is, baptism is the initial, as we would hold to, again, um, the initial form of obedience and initiatory right into the church as well as teaching. Now, you may say, well, that's not true of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Actually, it is. They would hold that this is the initiatory right into the covenant of the church. And that's where the distinction comes, is how we understand that covenant. And we can't get into all the details of that, though we will address some of them in the area of disagreement, but understand that that is what our Presbyterian brothers and sisters hold to. They hold that it is the initiatory right into the church and that it is applicable to those who would come believers, come to be believers later in life. They don't get rebaptized in the Presbyterian church. They hold that that baptism of the infant is what sticks, if you will. 
And, and they correlate that baptism to the doctrine of circumcision in the Old Testament. If a child is brought into the covenant people of Israel by circumcision, then a child is brought into the covenant people of the church by baptism. Now, I don't hold to that, but we need to be honest when we deal with our uh, and, and read about and study our Presbyterian brothers and sisters on what they believe and why they believe it. It is not just um, a carryover from Roman Catholicism, though that's the charge that's been given. Um, it is something that they believe correlates to Old Testament continuity with the New Testament. We don't hold that, but let's be honest about what they do hold to for them. It is an initial initiatory right and a, a matter of obedience for the parents to baptize their children. So, in essence, we have agreement about that idea of obedience and disciple-making. What are they doing? They're raising their children as covenant members in the church and instructing them in the Lord. It's a matter of discipleship. By the way, when we do ch- child dedications, are we not encouraging the same practice? We're, we're saying, ra- you know, raise your children in the... Uh, nurture and admonition, the, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're not saying, hey, you're pagan kids, by the way. They don't need the gospel. They don't need to hear about who God and Jesus is, right? That can come later. No, we, we essentially honor that same path. We just put baptism at the end rather than at the beginning. So let's be honest about that. But, so, but there is agreement over that. Just mode and who... It's the disagreement, as we'll see in point three, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Point number two, there's agreement in this. Baptism is a sign, not the substance. Baptism is a sign and not the substance. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. The focus of our study in Romans 6 will be verse 4, but I want us to back up. By the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some sprinkled throughout the row in front of you. Um, Romans 6, uh, 4 is on page 886 of that Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. I just invite you to take that Bible as a gift from us if you don't own your own Bible. Romans chapter 6, again, if you're grabbing that pew Bible, that's page 886. Looking at Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 1, but then zoom in on verse 4. Now, let me set this up for you. So I'm going to bring the picture out even a little bit broader here. The Apostle Paul has been focusing on the grace of God and salvation in basically Romans 4 and 5. He is set up in Romans 1 through the middle of chapter 3, really, that we are all sinners. Whether you're a Gentile uh, who has been held out from the oracles of God, or a Jew has, who has been given the oracles of God, there is no excuse for sin. And, and the way he brings it all together is in, in uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, when he's talking about actually those who are saved, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So we're all sinners. And then he expounds on the grace of God in chapters 4 and 5, saying things like, Like this, like um, you who were God's enemies, even while you were God's enemies and ungodly and you hated God, Christ died for you. So he's saying to the believers who are now in Christ, recognize this. When you were God's enemy, Christ died for you. When you wanted nothing to do with God, when you were rebellious against God, Christ died for you, an ungodly person. And, he, and he's just kind of overflowing with the grace of God in chapters 4 and 5. And so uh, we say amen, yes, and hallelujah to that. We need to rejoice in the grace of God. But so as not to confuse over what the grace of God is for, in Romans chapter 6, which there were no chapter divisions for Paul, he's just writing in the flow of his letter, he wants to explain something to them. Look at the end of chapter 5, actually, in verse 18. This is so important to our understanding of salvation. Romans chapter 5, and verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Who was that? Adam, right? One, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By the way, who will be made righteous? Only those who trust in Christ. Right? This is federal head theology, federal theology here. If you're in Adam, you're born in Adam. That's everyone. By Adam's disobedience, all are made sinners. By Christ's obedience, he uses the word all here, but then he qualifies it with many. There certainly are those who remain in Adam who never trust Christ. But for the many, Christ's one act of righteousness brings righteousness to them. Now notice what it says, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see what he's saying there? The law increases the severity of sin. Not because sin isn't severe to begin with, but what does it do for the person who's understanding the law? Right? Like, I am a wicked sinner. That's why we draw a distinction between the law and gospel. When we're sharing the gospel with people, we tell them the law of God. Here's where you and I have fallen short of God's glory. That's the bad news so sin increases because of the law, right? But, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Where sin is increased, grace is increased all the more because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Because he paid for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. But notice what Paul says. If this is true, if where sin increases, grace increases all the more, keeping that in mind, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That seems like the natural correlation. In other words, if law increases sin, but sin increases grace, the more we sin, the greater the grace. So let's just keep on sinning. Paul says, no. By no means. May it never be. He uses the double negative in the Greek here, which isn't making it positive. It strengthens the negative. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you have died to sin, you are not to continue as one who practices sin like you haven't died to sin. Now, we're going to sin. But something has changed. We've been transformed. Number one, we've been given Christ's righteousness. Number two, he has brought us from death to life. And we are able to engage that righteousness, as it were, of Christ and be obedient. Right? So, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then here's the point of what we're getting at here. Verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? <clears throat> Excuse me, he's correlating here the idea of death to sin in baptism. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, notice what it says, we too might walk in newness of life. What's the promise? The promise is that if we have been saved, if we have been regenerated, if we have trusted in Christ, we have died with Him, have been buried with Him, and have been raised to new life. There's a change. Old things have passed away. New things have come, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we are to live in that newness of life. So, when we read Paul here in in 6 and verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is he referring to? Is he referring to spiritual baptism or water baptism? The answer I would give is yes. It refers in the one sense to the internal and also to the external, which represents the internal. Tom Schreiner in his Commentary on Romans is helpful here. 
The reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who were baptized in another way of, is another way I'm sorry, of describing those who are Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ. Thus, Paul is saying here that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ, for all Christians had received baptism. To posit that the baptism mentioned here is simply metaphorical or baptism in spirit rather than water baptism is incorrect. Roman Christians would have inevitably thought of water baptism since it was the universal initiation rite for believers in Christ. And, and we begin to see some separation from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters here on this matter. But notice what I said at the beginning. Baptism is the sign, not the substance. We're explaining our view of that sign, not the substance, this morning. But we will correlate it to where we do agree with our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian Church. So what what Schreiner just said is this. There is no such thing as an unbaptized first century believer. We have so separated what is absolutely... Uh, what an, is an absolute necessity for someone to be born again, i.e., what is the bare minimum someone must be, do to be saved? And by that, we have stripped the command of Jesus in Matthew 28 down to the steps one must take to receive Christ rather than seeing that Christ commands us to repent and live our lives for Him as is demonstrated initially through the waters of baptism. We, we've been so concerned about what are the... Like the the one, twos, and threes of, of, of you know, seeing someone saved, that we, we forget that there's a discipleship aspect here. That is what Christ calls us to. And that first step after belief, according to what we believe, is that someone will be baptized as the initiatory rite into discipleship, into the membership of the church, to be discipled by the church, to be held accountable by the church. And it is this way in which we understand baptism as a means of grace. We're not saying that baptism confers saving grace, but rather, as Steve Wellam writes, in the practice of baptism, there is the blessing of God. In our obedience to Christ, in our public act of confessing Him, the Lord of the church pours His love and joy into our hearts. When baptism is practiced as a sign of the believer's union with Christ, the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith and encourages us to press on. In our celebration of this ordinance, in the presence of the body of Christ, the church, the people of God are encouraged in their commitment to the Lord and to each other. So the person who is being baptized, it is a, uh, a, an affirmation, a strengthening of their faith. And for those who are observing it, it is. Don't you just enjoy when we baptize people? We just rejoice in that. Why? Not because like we're so proud of that person, but because of what it represents. Because it represents to us a visual of the gospel. That person has died with Christ. They have been buried. And we, this is why we do immersion, right? Under the waters of baptism, it symbolizes their burial. And they are raised to new life. And that's an encouragement, an edification to our heart. And so, our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian church believe also that it is a sign and not a substance Differently than we believe the sign, they believe it is a sign of entering into the covenant community and the hope, not the guarantee, that that child will come to faith in Christ because they are surrounded by believing parents in a believing church. The hope of that, not the guarantee, but it is the sign, not the substance. So do not accuse Presbyterians who hold to Orthodox Christianity of baptismal regeneration, that they believe that those babies are now saved in the sense of being reconciled to God in Christ. They hold that they are a part of the covenant community. It's a sign, not the substance. Different sign in some ways than how we see it as a sign, but nevertheless a sign. So, we agree on those two matters. Thirdly, disagreement. Disagreement, the recipients of baptism. The recipients of baptism. And remember, we're talking about all of this to, to highlight the idea that we want to organize our church around secondary doctrines, but we do not want to divide from brothers and sisters in the universal church over an area of disagreement that is secondary. It's, it's, it's not primary unless someone says, you must be baptized in order to be saved. In other words, there is some act of obedience you must do in order to make God save you, and that act of obedience is... Baptism. 
What happens in Acts chapter 15? What's the argument there? The, the, the whole discussion in Acts 15 is, are we going to require Gentiles to be circumcised in order for them to be saved? If you don't know what circumcision is, children, ask your parents later. I'll leave that on them. But that was the question. That's the whole church council. That's the first church council. Why? Because they're concerned that the gospel will be polluted if we do not make a decision about this. And what's the decision? No, we cannot require Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. That would be a first order issue. Same is true of baptism. We cannot require baptism for salvation, though baptism is required as a means of obedience after salvation. So don't miss the requirement part. It's just where is the requirement part? And according to our understanding, it comes after one is born again. Disagreement, the recipients of baptism. Here's where we depart from agreement, but this is why it is a secondary matter and not a first. Now, let me just give you briefly here a history of the Bible church movement. Maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you do not know this. Because that is, Fellowship Bible Church is birthed out of the Bible church movement. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from what we mentioned earlier, the early days of the 20th century where there was liberalism was on the rise and people decided if we're going to be orthodox and fundamental, we need to stick to the fundamentals of the faith. And so you had people jumping ship from the main line denominations in order to form other things. So you have guys like uh, J. Gresham Machen, who formed the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He saw that he needed to leave the, the Northern Presbyterian Church and start something different, and so he did. And out of that was the OPC, which is uh, the, the, the denomination that is uh, under the Westminster uh, Seminary in Philadelphia, is the OPC. Um, you had others who banded together and formed what still exists today, known as the IFCA, used to stand for Independent Fundamental Churches of America, and now stands for I Fight Christians Anywhere. No, I'm just kidding. They took out the fundamental thing, so it's just known as IFCA International now. But its roots are in this movement of people who were breaking out of the liberal churches in order to stand upon the truth. Now, what you may not know is that a large part of that movement was Presbyterian. Some of the scholars of the Bible church movement who up until recently were still alive were some of the professors that were at Dallas Theological Seminary. Guys like John Walvoord. John Walvoord was a Presbyterian. And so you find in some of that when it came to the issue of baptism that the Bible church really didn't emphasize it. I remember being in an ordination council and... Uh, uh, and uh, one of the guys who was on the council with me uh, said to the, the guy being ordained, you know, well, why do you bring up this issue of baptism? Why is that so important? John Walvoord said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that baptism isn't that important of an issue. And I leaned down, I spoke up, I said, don't forget John Walvoord was a Presbyterian. <laughs> Not that Presbyterians don't take baptism seriously, but, but Walvoord has shifted from Presbyterian baptism to Baptistic form of baptism, but underemphasized it in the Bible church movement. So, interestingly enough, the Bible church movement is founded upon Presbyterianism to some degree. And there were those who actually split off from Westminster Seminary because of that and formed Faith Seminary in the same area because they wanted to hang with the Bible church type theology versus the Presbyterian theology. Now, I'm probably bored some of you to death at this point, right? But I want us to recognize that our Baptistic ways are not necessarily rooted in the founding of the Bible church movement, but that's okay. We, we hold to that, we practice that, but you need to know that. Let me read to you, though, as we talk about disagreement on the recipients of baptism, let me read to you the, the similarities between the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith which the London Baptist is actually based on the Westminster Confession. Listen to the Westminster Confession. Baptism is a sacrament 
And when, when they say sacrament there, they don't mean a means of salvation. They mean it as a means of grace, as I described earlier. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. Oh, by the way, this is the new material. This isn't what I preach in January, so you can wake up now if you were listening in January. <laughs> Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace there is just a a shorthand for the gospel. Of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Is there anything upon which we can disagree with? Which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world? That sounds like Matthew 28 19 and 20 and other verses that we've talked about this morning. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Now listen to the London Baptist. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Almost word for word. On the issue of baptism. Notice what neither is saying. Neither is saying that there is a need to be baptized in order to be saved. Both say it is a sign and a seal of the gospel. The difference comes in the mode. In the mode. And in the who. The mode, uh, the Westminster Confession allows for both sprinkling and immersion. Don't be shocked by that. They do immerse people if they want to be. And the LBC only immersion. But it's also the who. So, Westminster Confession of Faith goes on to say, not only those that do actually profess faith in, in, in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infant's of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. That's what it says in the Westminster Confession. Not only those who, that do actually profess faith in, in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. The LBC says those who do actually profess repent, repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. That's where the distinction is. Therefore, though we have agreement... In the matters of the gospel, we organize our churches differently around secondary matters. These are important for church unification at the local level, though we would not separate from our brethren in view of the gospel itself. Do you see? Very plainly, we are not a Presbyterian church. We are a Bible church, but we might as well say we're small b Baptists, right? Because we practice believers' baptism. Some of you don't like that. You'll tell me that later, I'm sure. That, that's, by the way, footnote that real quick. That's because the, the idea of Baptist has gotten a bad rap, and some of you need to update your understanding of that. But anyway, deal with that some other time. We organize such matters as membership and therefore proper entrance into discipleship around this ordinance. That's what we do as a local assembly. We do, it, we do see it as a means of strengthening the faith of the one who is receiving and strengthening the faith of the believers who observe. We just talked about that. Now, our closest brethren, in regard to those distinctions we hold dear, are our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. When you look at the distinctives of Fellowship Bible Church, reformational history, confessional uh, reality, biblical faithfulness, our closest friends in the Lord are our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. There's no denying that. And yet we differ in this area, and therefore we are not Presbyterian. Yet, once again, we would not have a problem with unifying with them with a gospel effort here in our city or around the world. And, you know, barring that we also baptize at the same time, like, which one are you going to choose? Like, are you going to choose the Baptist form or the Presbyterian form? We, we would think that it needs to be in the local church anyway. We would do that effort. We would proclaim the gospel together, arm in arm. And, let me add, we should. We should. Though the church universal is the body, we recognize the need of local bodies who organize around the first order of importance in the gospel always, and also the secondary doctrines that do shape the way in which we practice church. 
And it is the, this gospel message of first importance that I once again proclaim to you, uh, those of you who are in our midst, who have not been reconciled to God through Christ. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is a sign and a seal, but it does not save you. If you have been baptized, but you have never repented, turned from your sins, and trusted in Christ alone, you are not reconciled to God. You need to trust in Christ today. And that is my plea to you. Hear the gospel. Christ, the eternal Son of God, comes to earth, puts on humanity, lives a perfect life as the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Lives a life that we could not live. Dies the death that we deserve on the cross, taking the justice of God that we deserve. Rising again three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, awaiting the time where His enemies will be made His footstool. You must turn from your sin and trust in him alone. And then get baptized as a means of obedience. Lastly, it is right for us, dear members of FBC, to to be united. And for those of you who have yet to join us, I will here at the end stress the importance of being a part of a local church that is meant to nourish you on truth and even disciple you in these matters of second importance and hold you accountable to living out your Christian life. You need to be a member of some church. We would invite you to be a member of this church. But dear members of FBC, it is such a joy to be united and to live life together as this. If you've been here a while and have seen what we're all about, my question is, why have you not become a covenant member with us? Prayerfully consider that. And yet, those of us who currently are covenant members, let us rejoice in truth. And rejoice in how God has directed us to be united as a local assembly together. Let me pray for us. And then, Brother Paul is going to come and lead us in a final hymn. Lord, again, this is so much information for one Sunday morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Allow to stick in the minds of those who need to hear the gospel for perhaps the very first time, that and that alone. And for those of us who are in Christ, to, to, to recognize these distinctions are not things over which we divide in the universal body of Christ, but they are matters for which we organize, around which we organize our church. And that's important too. And uh, Lord, help us to be a unified body to walk with you, to encourage each other to walk with you. That your spirit might be working to unify this body, Lord. Oh, it's so easy to, for there to be disunity. But you have created it, Lord, by your spirit. And we are to maintain it in a spirit of love. Help us, Lord, to do that. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us be a gospel witness in this city and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.